Hosea chapter 12, and we are now um, three sermons from uh, the end of this series uh, in the book of Hosea. Uh, I'm going to actually begin reading in verse 11, verse 12 of chapter 11. Uh, And then go through the end of chapter 12. So would you give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies. And the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I found wealth for myself and all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord, your God from the land of Egypt. I will make again. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If There is iniquity in Gilead. They shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation. So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work. You um, have inspired these words, which rely on other inspired words from back in Genesis. Um. And you have preserved these words for us so that we might have them, know them, read them, and understand them. But Father, we pray that you would be at work by your grace, not just in our minds to understand, but in our hearts to love and respond in faith and trust to Christ. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. Uh, there are uh, all sorts of ways that we can say, you know, a kid looks or acts like his or her parent, right? I mean, there's the standard like father, like son. There's, um, you know, the, the ever present, I suppose, you know, the apple didn't fall far from the tree, 
there are all sorts of ways we can sort of compare our kids to, to compare kids to their parents. Uh, years ago, six or seven years ago now, um, we were in Columbia. We were in at First Pres in Columbia, the church I grew up in. Um, and it's not often that we're there on Sunday. And so we were there on a Sunday and all of my friends who still live there saw John and had flashbacks to 16 year old me. And we're like, this is weird. Like, it's literally like we're 16 again and looking at John. Um, of course, it's not just a looks thing, right? It's not just that the parent, the child looks like the parents. It, it's the way that children pick up on mannerisms and language and terminology and ridiculous jokes or whatever the case may be. Um, and I suppose we are Southern. Uh, we could always use, or at least most of us are Southern. Uh, we could always use, you know, he's the spitting image of his father. Well, the reality is that's kind of what's going on in Hosea 12. Except that the spitting image has jumped generations. Uh, dozens of generations. I didn't bother to go back and count. I didn't bother to go figure out like how far would it be from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob down to where we are now. But we do know that Israel was in bondage in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. So it's been that. Then you have to back up to Jacob. Then you have to jump through to where we are now. We're talking dozens and dozens of generations. And yet what Hosea writes in Hosea 12 is Israel, the nation, Israel, the northern kingdom is the spitting image of their namesake. Uh, and so I want you to see this morning just how that works out. Uh, they are the spitting image of their great, great. And you have to go. I don't know how many greats it would be. Grandfather Jacob. And it's almost like. Hosea basically is preaching a sermon on Genesis 25 to 35. And, and, and maybe perhaps some of you are thinking, man, if only Jeff could do 10 chapters in, you know, 10 or 15 lines, that would be swell. But it's almost like he's preaching a sermon on those chapters of Genesis. And you'll want to keep your Bible handy because I'm going to actually make you turn back there in just a minute. <coughs> I think it's important, too, to recognize that this likeness isn't limited just to the northern kingdom of Israel. Because the whole kingdom, the united kingdom prior to the division after Solomon, the whole thing is descendant, are the descendants of, of Jacob. And so Judah bears the same likeness. And I think that's part of the reason that Judah, even though Hosea's focus is in the north, is on Israel in the north, sometimes called Ephraim. It's the same, still Israel, it's still the northern kingdom. I think that's why he introduces Judah. And in fact, I'm, I don't think the last half of verse 12 is correct. I don't think that that's supposed to say Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. That's actually the trans, that's what the Septuagint says. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The, the Hebrew Old Testament says something different. It, especially in light of the fact that in verse 2, 
he's going to say, I have an indictment against Judah. It seems odd to bring an indictment against someone who walks faithfully with God and still walks with the Holy One, right? Um, and so I think the aim there is actually supposed to be that they are also in danger. They are equally in trouble. And that's why Judah is introduced in this passage. The reality is Israel, Judah, the northern, the southern kingdoms, they're really supposed to be one big happy family. And in this, they are. It's in that they are both like, well, in that they are both the spitten image of Jacob. First, I want you to notice, like Jacob, Israel is deceptive. Um, You'll remember Jacob and and you may not remember much of Jacob. And, and Jacob, usually it's, you know, you get to chapter 25, 6, 7 into 32. I mean, you're still kind of generally keeping up with your read the Bible in a year plan at that point. And so my guess is most of you have gotten to that part of Genesis already at some point this year. And so Jacob will be somewhat fresh in your minds. He comes before Numbers. He comes before Leviticus, which is usually where everybody seems to get bogged down. But if you remember, he's born holding on to his twin brother's heel. My dad was an OBGYN. He's a retired OBGYN. Delivered, I don't know how many thousands of babies through the years. We found even a bulletin board that had pictures of him with the sets of twins he had delivered. And I've heard stories about all kinds of things growing up with an OBGYN sitting there at the dining room table. I never heard anyone, any story at all about, you're not going to believe what happened. I delivered twins, and when the first one came out, the second one was holding on to his foot. That's supposed to be odd. That's supposed to be strange. That's supposed to sound unusual to us. Because the reality is, it's actually a reflection of his character. It's a reflection of who Jacob is. Turn back to to Genesis chapter 25. And let's just quickly take two quick glances at a couple of passages from Jacob's life. So we can kind of get a feel for uh, his his character. Um, He's born, the end of chapter 25, uh, not only has he been born holding on to um, his brother's heel, there's this glimpse that as he grasps onto Esau's ankle, basically the rest of his life, or at least most of the rest of his life, is spent grasping for whatever Esau had. And you get that at the end of Genesis 25. Look at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. He was tired. He was exhausted. He was famished. He was hungry. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sure, brother, I've made plenty. I'm happy to share with my brother. No, that's not his response. His response is, I'll trade you this stew for your birthright. He's still grasping Esau's heel. 
He's still holding on and wants what is rightly Esau's. He said, swear to me now, let's swear. And then he gave him the stew. And Jacob swindles his brother out of his birthright. The firstborn is entitled to greater blessing. That's the point. That's the aim in that context. And so Jacob, since he couldn't pull Esau back and come out first at birth, he does it here. He says, okay, fine. I'll trade you that birthright for this stew. And then you get down into Genesis 27. Uh, Look down at verse uh, 34, for example, um, in Genesis 27. In Genesis 27, uh, Jacob comes along. um, uh, Their their father is uh, Isaac is about to die. He knows the end of his life is coming. And he wants to give the blessing to Esau. And so Jacob dresses up like Esau and goes in and tricks both his father and Esau. And he ends up getting the blessing that was supposed to be for Esau. If you've ever watched Parks and Rec, you will remember that uh, Leslie Nope's arch nemesis on city council in Pawnee, Indiana was Jeremy Jam. And he was constantly tricking her. He would promise something, he would reach a deal, and then he would go back on his deal. And do you remember his always said the same thing? You just got jammed. Well, here's the thing. You can picture Jacob looking at Esau. Look at verse 34 of chapter 27. Um... 33, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, I've already blessed Jacob. He cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has, where your version says cheated me, he has Jacobed me. It's the same root word. And so Jacob lives his life grasping at the heel of his brother Esau. And so the the reality is Jacob is deceitful. And just like Jacob, Israel is guilty too. Notice verse 7, for example, back in Hosea chapter 12. They are a merchant. And the word there is Canaanite. A merchant, a trader. Some of your English versions will say a trader. That's T-R-A-D-E-R, not A-I-T-O-R for those of you that can't tell that I'm not speaking clearly enough. Uh, A a merchant in whose hands are false balances he loves to oppress. You see, if you wanted to cheat somebody, you had two scales. You had one that was a little heavy when you were buying and one that was a little light when you were selling. I think I did that right. It's written down right here. I can't, I'm going to get that confused. But you get the point. It's adjusted so that if you're selling, then it's a little heavy so that you don't have to sell as much for the full price. When you're buying, it's a little light so that you can get a little extra for the regular price. 
And so there's this picture then of Israel, this northern kingdom is as deceitful as their father, Jacob. They're guilty. They're sinners. They deceive those around them. They're tricking the people around them and even their own people for their own good. Like Jacob, Israel is deceptive. Second, like Jacob, Israel is self-reliant. Notice the language of verses 3 and 4. Um, he took his brother by the heel, strove with God. It's not every day you get to use the word strove. And so it's always a joy. Um, strove with the angel, prevailed with God. You remember the account of Jacob wrestling with Perhaps it's the angel of the Lord. Perhaps it's God himself, sort of a pre-incarnate Christ wrestling with Jacob. Whatever the case, the, notice the even here, it's he wrestled with God, wrestled with an angel, and he prevailed. And he wrestled through the night. He contended with him. And I think in some ways that WrestleMania event was actually intended to be a picture of Jacob's attempt to satisfy God's demands. Jacob has been a deceiver, but he's also been self-reliant. And so there's this sense in which as he wrestles with God, he's thinking, well, if I can just bring God down, if I can pin him, if I can hold him down, if I can beat him, then he will have to bless me. He will have to give me the, the, the joys and desires of my heart. He will be in my debt rather than I being in his debt. And so there's this sense that Jacob strives with God as a way to say, I can redeem myself by my own works. We do that, don't we? We will even use things like going to church. Oh, but I go to church, God. You owe me. I mean, I've been like two weeks in a row now. Like I go like 60% of the time. That's better than half and that's better than most. And so you kind of owe me. Or we set up rules and laws and say, well, as long as I keep these rules, as long as I keep these laws, then, then God is in my debt. We want to figure out some way to force God to be satisfied with our efforts. And that's kind of the picture here. That's kind of the, the point of, of Jacob wrestling with God. And that's why the writer of, why Hosea brings it up here in these verses. Because notice verse 8. Ephraim said, ha, I'm rich. I have found wealth for myself. There's no mention of God. 
No mention of God's care for them. No mention of God's provision for his people. There's no indication that they depend on Yahweh for their good, for their care, for their provision and protection. Instead, look what I've done for me. I have wealth and I have myself to thank for it. In fact, that's part of the point in verse 7. Why the word merchant there, it's the same word as Canaanite. They are just like the people who were in the land that they were supposed to have displaced hundreds of years ago. We've seen before in Israel's history. We've seen before in Hosea where the Israelites are essentially just going through the motions of keeping the law as a way to say, God, I'm doing it. You said offer sacrifices. Look, I'm offering sacrifice. I mean, sure, Baal is here. I mean, I get it. There's other gods here too. But I'm offering a sacrifice to you. Or I'm ascribing to Baal. Okay, yes, but it's still, you did the work even though I'm saying that Baal has cared for me. Baal has taken care of us. They worshipped Baal. They participated in all sort of sexual rituals that associated with that. And yet they still also tried to keep the old covenant requirements. Like, for example, verse 9, the Feast of Tabernacles. That annual feast of living in a tent and commemorating, celebrating God's provision and care for their people, for his people through the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land. And so they they kept the feast, but they did it as a way to say, Look at me, God. Look at how great I am. Look at all the things I do. You said to do this and I'm doing it. See? Are you seeing? Are you watching? Like the three-year-old that says, Mom, are you watching me? Dad, are are you watching what I'm doing? That's essentially the heart of legalism, right? Going through the motions, even the things commanded by God, doing them outwardly with no heart, with no love, with no gratitude. I mean, I go to church. I mean, I, you know, my brain's somewhere else. My heart's somewhere else. I don't sing. I only half pay attention. I really don't care. But I go to church. We have all sorts of ways of thinking that we can contend with God, that we can be self-reliant. And when we take pride in our law-keeping, when we take pride in externally doing the things that make us look good, then we are missing the point. We're actually being self-reliant rather than dependent on God. It's, it's a, a way to contend with God, a way to, to put Him in our debt, if you will. Jacob was deceitful. And self-reliant. And the nation of Israel was just like their ancestor. Think for a second about what deceitful self-reliance says. Right? 
when we're deceitful like that, when we're tricking other people, we are actually saying, I don't trust anyone else. Now, I, I get it, right? That's what the, the morning radio program wants you to think. Never trust nobody, right? But that's not how it works in the church. The point of the church is we're actually supposed to care for each other. We're supposed to be able to trust one another. And so that statement doesn't work inside the church. I don't mean the building. I mean within the body of Christ. And when we're deceitful, we're saying, I don't trust you. And so I have to take matters into my own hands. Oh, and when we're self-reliant, we're saying to God, I don't trust you. And so I've got to take matters into my own hands. God, you don't love me, you don't care, or you are weak, or you are not paying attention, and so I've got this. And so we wave him off and become self-reliant. It's like the illustration I've used, I don't know how many times uh, over the years, but it's been a while, so I'll use it again. There was a, uh, one of the NBA um, uh, All-Star games, I think it was, where... Uh, Michael Jordan was guarding Kobe Bryant. And the West had Carl Malone. And Carl Malone's whole basketball game was the pick and roll. He would set a screen. He would, and so he came up to set a pick on Michael Jordan. Kobe waved him off. Literally saying, I can take MJ myself. That's what we do. When we're that kind of self-reliant. God, I can, I can handle my atonement myself. I can solve my problem of sin myself. So what's the remedy? What's the solution? Well, do you remember what happened to Jacob when he wrestled with the angel? Verse 4. When he wrestled with God. When he met God at Bethel there in verse 4. Do you remember what happened to him? His name changed. He got a, a whole, a new name, a new character, if you will. And, and the question of chapter 12 is, what if the kingdom of Israel were more like Israel and less like Jacob? What if Israel, the nation, was more like its actual namesake, Israel, and not Jacob himself? Or perhaps better, how was Israel different from Jacob? How was the new Jacob named Israel now? Notice in verse 4. That's, he wrestled with God at Bethel. This is one of the few times the writer of Hosea uses the name Bethel. He's been using the name Beth-Avon. Bethel means house of God. Beth-Avon means house of deception. In other words, Israel has taken this, this place that is um, a special place of meeting between God and His people and have turned it into a den of iniquity. And so what's the result of Jacob wrestling with God? It was... A name change. But it was more than just a name change. Uh, you may not know this. And I hesitate to say this out loud. However. Uh, my name is not Jeff. 
My first name is actually John. Uh, I'm the third. And when I was born, my grandfather, my dad's dad, the first, the senior, was horrified at the prospect that I would grow up as little John or little Johnny. And so he was wholeheartedly committed to solving that problem with some sort of nickname for which I might add that side of my family is incredibly well known. If you take my first two initials, JF, and if you say them really fast, like a good Southerner, you get death. And there's my nickname. But the reality is that has done nothing except cause me headaches over the years at the DMV, airlines, and banks. Other than that, it's really, it's just a meaningless name change, right? It changed my name, but it really didn't change anything about me. But for Jacob, his name change to Israel actually indicates a relationship change with God. Israel, the nation, has been meeting at Beth Avon with Baal. Jacob met there with the one true God at Bethel, and he came away with not just a new name, but with a new heart. And part of the point is, at that point, he came to understand God's grace. God came to Jacob, met with him there at Bethel. And what the nation of Israel needs, what we need is to meet with God by his grace. Just look at verse six. So you. By the help of your God, what does that language by the help of your God mean? It means depend on him, not yourself. If you are self-reliant, Instead, depending on God, be dependent on him and on his grace and his mercy to us. The solution to self-reliance is to look to God as provider and perfect caregiver. And so the the best way for Israel, the best way for us to deal with self-reliance is to watch and see in Scripture how God orchestrates events and cares for his people. And does so in ways that you couldn't create yourself. And when the self-reliant person waits on the Lord. When the self-reliant person by the help of God holds fast to love and justice. And waits continually for your God. Verse 6. He is no longer self-reliant. But the need isn't just external. The need is internal. The need isn't just out there. It's inside of us it's not more law keeping or creating some standard that you can claim to keep and force god to be in your debt i know it's the call to depend on him to rely on him and to do so with his help verse six jacob didn't just receive a new name he received a new heart And what this passage wants is for Israel and for us to be more like Israel and less like Jacob. To be more like our ancestor, our father Israel, and less like 
Jacob. In fact, part of the point, I think, of this passage, notice how the passage ends. Verse 13, Ephraim, Israel, they're goners. Like, the, the defeat of Israel, the defeat of the northern kingdom is a foregone conclusion. Assyria is coming. They are, they are going to take them and scatter them and bring an end to them. Why then is this chapter written? To be a warning to Judah, who still has time, who still has a little over a hundred years. Assyria is going to go back to Egypt, as it were. They're going to go into, I mean, Israel is going to go back to Egypt, as it were, in Assyria and in exile. They're going to be carried off. Judah, on the other hand, still has about a hundred years to wait. Some of you are privileged enough to know the South Carolina state motto. Doom Spiro Sparrow. While I... Doom Sparrow Spiro. I always get Doom Spiro Sparrow. I always get the Latin confused. While I breathe, I hope. That's this chapter. As long as Judah has breath in her lungs, there's hope of forgiveness. There's hope of restoration. There's hope of receiving God's grace. And part of the point is to call Judah, to call God's people, to call us to repentance. As long as you have breath, you have the hope of coming to saving faith in Christ. And so this chapter asks, are you being deceitfully self-reliant or are you leaning on Christ in him alone? Are you holding fast to him? Are you holding firm to God and to his care for you? Are you humbly trusting in his provision or are you still looking at your own works, your own goodness, your own merit and saying, Hey God, look at me. I'm doing the things you want. I'm doing enough to make you happy. I'm doing enough to keep you in my debt. I'm contending with you. If that's you, then look to Christ. Just as Israel does, Christ is the perfect Jacob. Christ is the perfect Israel who always held fast to the father, who always delighted in his father's care, who rejoiced to do his father's will. Because the grace of God in Christ is our only hope to be delivered from our deceitful self-reliance. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you can point us to Jacob, who was deceitful, who was self-reliant, and who by your grace changed, which means we have the same hope. You are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And just as by your grace he became Israel, so we too, by your grace, could receive a new heart, can be made new. Father, would you root out of us as you grow us more and more into the image of Christ that we would be less deceitful, less self-reliant, less like Jacob and more like Israel, trusting in you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to live, to suffer, to bleed, to die in our place. 
Would you hold us fast? May it be that our only hope is your righteousness, your goodness and not our own, and your blood shed for our guilt. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.